Hey everyone, I thought I'd take a couple of minutes here uh, at the beginning of the show and explain a little bit about what we're doing uh, with the with this episode and next week's episode. When I first started this podcast, uh, one of the one of the first people I thought I have to interview and sit down and talk with is uh, a friend of mine named Frankie Shane Pierman. And in the episode, I explain how our lives have kind of crossed paths in a number of different ways over the years. And uh, he's just a fascinating person, and I always enjoy talking to him. And he, he makes me think. He makes me uh, think a little bit beyond uh, my own, I guess, perception on things. So I've always enjoyed these conversations. But uh, it's as always happens with, with Frankie Shane, uh, we went on a long time. And uh, it seems like that happens uh, no matter where we're talking to each other. We just enjoy the conversation so much it almost feels like time isn't moving. And that's what happened here. And so by the time we were done recording, uh, we were about two hours in. And I decided instead of having a two-hour episode, which I think is a, a little much to, to expect from people to listen to, we decided to break it into two parts. There seemed to be kind of a natural division. So this first episode, we'll, we'll have a conversation mostly about uh, health and wellness and weightlifting and things like that, and then uh, talk a little bit about music and kind of how he got into it. And he's been heavily involved in the music scene in Hutchinson for a long time. So I wanted to talk with him about that and, and, and his passion for music. The second episode, which will air next week, uh, we talk a lot about his faith. And, and I know anybody that knows Frankie Shane knows what an important part of his life that is and how he uses that to guide almost everything that he does. And so that part was really fascinating, and I really enjoyed that conversation with him. So for the next two weeks, you're going to get to hear this, what is going to seem, I hope, uh, and it should because it is, just a conversation between friends that happen to have microphones in the room. And I think that you'll you'll enjoy this. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. And uh, I hope that you'll come back next week and catch the second part. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jason Probst, that guy in Hutch, and you're listening to that podcast in Hutch. Today, I have with me a friend of mine I've known for a long, long time. We were just talking about mm-hmm. all the different ways we've known each other. Frankie <laughs> Shane Pierman. Yeah. Uh, you can call him Frankie or Shane. We were just talking about that. <laughs> I'll answer to either. <laughs> thanks for coming on today. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. So we were we were talking before we started recording about all the the, the kind of ways our our paths have crossed over the years. And uh, a long time ago, we both worked at Mega Manufacturing. I yep. think you were over in the weld shop. I was a welder, yep. And I was over on the machine side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So every now and then, we didn't work directly together, but every right. now and then, we'd cross paths. And then... We'd see each other around town all the time because that's oh, yeah. what happens, you know, when you live in a place <laughs> like Hutch. I live in Hutch, yeah. yeah. So bumping to each other at the grocery right. store, or the quick mm-hmm. shop or whatever. Yeah. But then we really kind of reconnected when you were at Johnson Music. Yeah. And yeah. that's when Mitch was at the age where he was going in, uh, plucking a- on guitars all guitars. the time. <laughs> yeah, coming in and beating up the pit guards, uh, uh, trying to learn how to play and probably playing like the three chords that he knew uh, over and over again. He was passionate, though. Very yeah. passionate. <laughs> 
And, and then the, the other place that we've seen each other a lot and had a lot of good conversations actually is uh, at the gym. We both yep. work out at the same gym. Absolutely. And, so, and, yep. ge- and generally around the same time. Yeah. yeah. Mornings are usually best. <laughs> I yeah. think mornings are best also. Yeah. If I don't do it in the morning, it won't happen. Right. Um, well, t- let's talk a little bit about... Uh, the weightlifting, you've done that for a number of years uh, can you, and, and you're pretty passionate about it. Oh yeah. Uh, can yeah. you talk to me just a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I started weightlifting when I was uh, 19. I had a bunch of friends that used to box and this was when the Golden Gloves boxing gym was down on B street. And uh, I just, boxing never was my thing. I was like, eh, I don't want to do that, you know, but I wanted to get into fitness and all these guys were fairly fit. Well, at that time I was into skateboarding and punk rock. So I was like, yeah, it can wait. So about the time I hit uh, 18, 19, I started thinking, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm out of school now and I need to do something. And uh, so these guys were still, few of them were working out. But then uh, they kept okie-dokie me on getting started. I'm like, hey, man, I really want to get into lifting. You guys have been doing it at the gym. I want to get into Oh, yeah, yeah. And everybody's like, well, let's do it this day. And then that day would come around, they'd sleep in or something would happen. So I made a decision that these guys slowly started getting out of shape because they weren't doing it as consistently. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm trying to get into shape. I remember it was Thanksgiving of that year. And I said, okay, this is it. I'm having my big Thanksgiving dinner. And come Monday, it's on. And that, whether they go with me or not, I'm going to lift and I'm giving myself 10 years. This is what, the conversation I have myself. 10 years, you're going to stick to this. And if in 10 years, you feel like it's not for you, or if in 10 years, you don't see any progress, or for 10 years, you decide that, oh, this is just too much work, then you're done. But give yourself 10 years. That's a big commitment for someone that's 19. <laughs> How long have you been lifting now? Um, 20 eight years <laughs> That's right. because I'm 47 now. So yeah, 28 years. Um, and I, I often remember it because my daughter, I found out that my wife at the, my first wife, um, that we were, we were pregnant while I was at the gym. She had mess. She says, guess what? We're having a baby, you know? And I was like, what? You know, I was freaked out. I'm like, I'm going to be a dad, you know? Um, so, um, so yeah. Um, 28 years now. So I, I kind of doubled and I'm going on triple that 10 year mark, but, but I, I just got to the point where not only did I see changes, but I felt better. Mm-hmm. I felt stronger, obviously. And I just, I noticed that people around me that were into fitness had a certain level of, of discipline and a certain level of, of uh, commitment that I admired. And I noticed that other people seemed to respond to me more because they could tell, oh, he's a fit guy. And I, and I'd always heard that that's something mentally people see someone fit and they're like, well, there's someone who's committed. There's someone who don't mess around. That's not why I was doing it, but, um, it did give me a level of confidence I didn't quite expect. And, uh, so I just stuck with it and I've been passionate about it. And, you know, for years it was kind of, I was what they call a bro lifter, mm-hmm. you know, it was all about bench day and all about big arms and all about this and that. And, and I never really was good about the diet side of things. Cause I thought, Oh, you know, if you gotta, you gotta eat big to get big, you know, yep. you gotta, you gotta put a lot of calories to get strong, which is that principle. And it's root is true, but it's the way you get those big calories and stuff. And in the last probably two years, uh, 19 or 19, 2019, um, I started a challenge with a guy online who I had been admire of for a long time. And, um, his big thing, he's, he's, 
tremendous shape, huge guy, was like Mr. Universe four or five times, natural universe. And um, his big thing is that when you look at your pyramid of health, everyone thinks it goes workout, cardio, meals, rest. He said, but actually it should be nutrition first, meals, rest, and then your work. He said, your workout should be almost the last thing on the list. And that completely flipped me around. I'm like, wait a second. That makes no sense. You want to get big. You got to lift the heavy weights. You got to push hard. Yeah. But if you don't eat right and you don't have the nutrition in place, then a lot of that's for naught. Because that's kind of the foundation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so so one of the things I always notice, there's two things I really notice when we're in the gym together. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is that you're you're typically lifting all the weights. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> you go to one bench machine if 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 Shane's on the bench machine, the, the, it's it's slim pickings on the on the on the plates that are available. On the other ones. <laughs> I'm surprised they let me do that in Planet Fitness, but they know me and they know that I'm, I'll be the first one to give them back up if someone needs them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the other thing I always notice is that you're, you're, you're always helping other people or tell, showing other people how to improve their technique and not mm-hmm. in like the unsolicited right. way. There's, right. there's, there's gym etiquette. There's right. like some people can't help but go up and share <laughs> what yeah. they know you're I doing do, it all i don't want to be that guy yeah. i've never yeah. seen you be that guy right what i always see is you're just people will come to you and mm-hmm. that's a natural thing because you're usually if not the biggest guy one of the biggest guys in the mm-hmm. gym at the time yeah. so people naturally say well that guy clearly knows what he's doing right. so <laughs> right. i'm gonna go ask him right. but you are always so uh so forthcoming with, mm-hmm. with help and, and always willing to help people. Uh, yeah. you've, I've seen you bring people in to work out. Yeah. Uh, if yeah they I've want trained help a few people. It. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I think with that, that goes along with just kind of who I am. Um, I just, uh, you know, I always want to try and pay it forward. You know, um, I figure if I've got the knowledge and someone wants the knowledge, then I'm more than happy to share it. But like you said, I, I can't stand the guys that walk in there and just automatically see someone do something wrong and walk up to a complete stranger and go, you know, you need to do that different. You're not doing that right. You know, what are you working? You know, what are you trying to get out of this? Those thoughts go through my head as I'm watching people. Cause I people watch while I'm at the gym too. Sure. Everybody does. And sometimes I'm like, well, cause sometimes I get ideas for different ways to do something because it's amazing the way the body is that the simplest little twist of the wrist can change the way it hits your bicep when you're curling or mm-hmm. the simple little uh, angle that you do something changes completely how it hits the muscle. And so I, I watch people sometimes from like, I get ideas or try something new, but sometimes I see people and I'm like, I can, I know that they're trying to work their arms when they're doing this, but they're swinging so much it's become a back exercise. So, but I'm like, yeah. but they're not asking for my help and I'm not going to, be that guy at least they're getting in here that's one thing i'm big about that's one thing i do like about and i'm not trying to plug planet fitness but um but that's one thing i do like about that particular gym they say no judgment and there still is going to be judgment no matter where you go sure. but but as a company um it does encourage people to get in there that i otherwise would not see in a gym and i i actually like that when i see someone that is extremely overweight, obese, or someone that is walking around with an oxygen tank, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're in the gym. I, I encourage that. And, and that makes me feel better that I'm at a gym where that's something that everyone else in there seems to be okay with. People aren't judging them. You know, that, I like that point because one of the things that I think 
if we've been working out for a while and mm -hmm. going to the gym as a normal part of our day or our weekly routine, I think one of the things we can and do forget about, uh, I remember when I started, it was a horribly intimidating experience oh, for yeah. me to go into a gym. Mm -hmm. I, I had spent the last uh, 20 years raising my kids, didn't yep. have time for that. Yep. I was working, building my career. I was out of shape. Uh, and I knew it. I knew how out of shape I was. Yeah. And I was people, going in. People aren't oblivious. No. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so I'm going into a place where everybody, it seemed, was in shape. Yeah. And it was, it, it was internally, it was anxious. I was mm -hmm. anxious. I was embarrassed. Yeah. Um, and I looked around and I just, you start that comparison thing, right? Yeah. Where you're like, I'm, I'm never going to get where these guys are. I'm mm -hmm. so out of shape. They're, this guy's over here benching 300 pounds and I've got, you know, the Two, bar. Yeah, I've got the bar. The 10 pound weight yeah. on. And I think it's for, for some of us who've been doing, I haven't been doing it as long as you have, but some of us who've been doing it a while, I think it's important for us to remember just how much courage it takes oh, for yeah. people to, yeah. who haven't been doing it to come into that place, to feel like they're being judged. Oh yeah. And to overcome that, mm -hmm. to try to make improvements. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll be the first one to be their cheerleader is the way I try to look at it. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm proud of these people for even the girls at the counter, you know, even they've gotten to know, I've gotten to know them. You probably got to know. Sure. And it's just like, even they'll sometimes say something like, Hey, how do you do this or whatever? And I'll say, well, I'm doing this. Like, oh, that's too hard for me. But like, you know what? You'll get there. It's, it's okay. You know, everybody's got their own journey. Everybody's body responds different. I can't, there's not a cookie cutter necessarily way to do things. There are certain exercises that everybody should do, but how those exercises are done in what increments and in what uh, form and in how, what volume that depends on each person, yeah. you know? And so, you know, I, I'm usually, you know, anytime someone gives me a compliment when I'm there that I've never met before, like, man, you're looking good. Or man, that's a lot of weight. I'm like, Hey man, everybody's had to start somewhere. I didn't start pushing this kind of weight. You know, I, I had a buddy of mine that lost, uh, like 160 some odd pounds. And I didn't know till after he had lost it all. And he's like, well, you were the, you were the reason I started. And I'm like, what do you mean I was the reason I started? He goes, because I remember when I was still really heavy set, he goes, I felt uncomfortable in the gym. And he said, and I went to a gym you were at, it was Elmdale when Elmdale okay, was yeah. still open to everybody. And he said, I remember going in there and he goes, and I feel like the odd man out, everyone's in workout closing. I was in jeans and a cutoff shirt. And he's like, I got this huge belly hanging over me. And he goes, and you're lifting the heaviest weights they got and doing it in, you know, huge numbers. And he goes, and I grabbed the little twenties and he goes, and I'm struggling. And he said, and I remember you said to me, Hey, Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't start out the Arnold Schwarzenegger. We know he started out like everybody else. He had to grab the 10 pounds, then go to the 15 and go 20. And I said, don't worry about what I lift. Don't worry about anyone else lifts. The only person you need to worry about is the person you're looking at in the mirror. That's the only person you should try to challenge and you should try to make better. Don't worry about anyone else. And I said, when you get in here, don't even, you grab the weight that works for you. You're on a different journey than the other guy. Mm -hmm. So don't worry about it. And I said, you just need to keep coming in. I said, you know, and I'm, I'll be your cheerleader. I said, you have questions, you ask me and I will give, I will help you in any way I can, but you just need to get in here and just do you, man. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Cause he did the same thing you did. He got in there and even Elmdale, you know, it was a lot of older folks, but there were a couple of pretty good sized guys in there. Oh, yeah. And, um, 
And it could still be intimidating, even in there, because some of those old folks that down there, dude, they would run like full on sprint on those treadmills for an hour solid. And I'm struggling to <laughs> to sprint for, you know, two minutes and then take a 30 second interval and do, you know, uh, like intervals. I remember that. <laughs> and these guys are like running full tilt. I'm like, what? You know, that's intimidated me. I'm like, well, I'm not doing cardio here. That's embarrassing. But, <laughs> you know, it's like I got a taste of it, too. You know, so. um so, yeah, I mean, I, that's a big thing to me is that when if people want help or if people ask for help, I'll be the first, you know, I don't. Oh, no, you I can't share my secrets now. You know, hey, yeah, definitely. I, I have a kid that I just trained a good buddy of mine who was in a band of mine, Soapbox Troubadours. His son's been wanting to lift with me since he was like eight years old. But he was too young to get into gyms. Mm -hmm. His dad didn't want him doing it till he hit a growth spurt and he started seeing his, you know, he was getting his hormones going. And so he could really take advantage. He turned 13 on February 28th. So March 1st, we started in the gym. We worked out all summer and now he's doing sports and stuff. But in that summer, his bench went up, his squat went up because he was doing it for strength because he's going into football. He wants to sure. be able to hold his own. And uh, the kid, kid was probably one of the only people I've ever trained besides a doctor here in town, I trained for a while, um, that never once complained, never once whined, never said, why are we doing this again? If I told him to do something, he would do it. And if I said, you need more weight, he'd put it on. Not once did he ever question. He just went in there like, you tell me what to do, I'm going to do it. And that kid did great. And uh, that made, that was probably a better, I felt more pride in that than my own muscle growing a quarter inch or whatever. It's like, that felt better to me to know that I helped that kid get somewhere. Cause you you're know? sharing that knowledge, sharing right? the knowledge, yeah. man, it's paying it forward, That's spreading right. the love, you know? <laughs> so another area that I know you are passionate in, and I know that, uh, you do the same sort of thing. You mm -hmm. take kind of share that knowledge mm -hmm. and that passion with others is in music. Oh yeah. You've been involved in a, a, a lot of different efforts locally mm -hmm. with the music scene. I know when, when my son Mitchell was getting into music, you'd mm -hmm. spend a, a lot of time talking to him about, oh, yeah. you know, technical aspects of playing technical mm -hmm. aspects of uh, of the guitar mm -hmm. and understanding that and uh and of the business part of it too we've had talks about that his band would play shows and they'd say he would say hey you know do you know anyone up here that can hook us up I, like they played uh at prairie dunes at the uh music on the patio yes and he's like yeah he's like I, frankie i gotta know man um they're asking us what we charge he's like we've never had shows where we made money <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I get it. You know? And he's like, what do we charge? And I said, well, you know, first you got to think of how many band members you're, you're bringing in. Are you bringing your own sound? Are you bringing your own gear? You know, all of that adds the numbers up. And, uh, I said, you don't want to sell yourself short, but I said, you don't want to oversell cause you'll never get a show that way either. Yeah. And so me and him had a long conversation. I don't remember where he went in the middle, but I gave him kind of a ballpark since they were starting out. Because when, when I was in one of the bands I was in the Troubadours, we, we played all original music. There were a handful of covers and they were covers that were so obscure. Most people thought we wrote them. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, and we, I was always not only the lead singer and lead principal songwriter, I was also the manager. I was also the sound guy. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of was a jack of all trades and, um, people started asking us what we charge. And I had to face that too. I'm like, man, I, I don't want to give our talent away, but I also don't want to make ourselves 
be so elite that we never get off the ground because no one wants to hire us because we're too expensive. So I had to deal with that too. So that was one of the things I shared with Mitchell. I've shared with several of the bands because he's talked to other guys and said, Hey, ask Frank. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, Hey man, we, we got shows. We're starting to get paid. What do we ask? You know? And so, um, you know, yeah, again, it's paying it forward, but Mitchell's such a great guy. And he's, <laughs> That kid is stupid talented, man. I swear <laughs> to God. You know, I mean, I'm a, my biggest talent, my most impressive, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but this is what others have told me. The most impressive thing that I can do is is vocally. And that people, when they see me, just see me and then they hear me, they're like, those two things don't add up. <laughs> you know, people are like, I was not expecting that to come out of that, you know. Yeah. And uh, and my playing is okay. You know, I've never I've never been a shredder or nothing like that. I, I play to compliment a song. I don't play to take the show from the song I, because I'm just, that's never been me. I love those guys. I respect those guys. But at this point in my life, I, I kind of missed the point in my life where I had the time to commit to it that I wouldn't, that is needed. You know, like Mitch, when he was younger, dude was just, it was homework and guitar and sometimes just guitar, oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's like, but me, I was, I always had, when I was a kid, there was, I live in Oklahoma. So you were, you had to be into sports cause that's what everybody that's was what doing. Did, yeah. So I was in baseball, basketball, football, sucked at all those as well. I never was great at sports. <laughs> I never was the worst one on the team. Everybody liked me. Cause even back then I was one of the bigger kids, but I wasn't a muscular kid. I was just a Husky kid. Um, so I was always one of the, one of the first string, of course, we were in a private school. There wasn't much of an option, anyway. <laughs> but I was always first string, but I was never the star guy. Yeah. That was never me. I was always the supporting act, you know, yeah. and that was the way it was with sports. And so I didn't have the time then. I tried to get in guitar when I was like 12 and I learned how to play House of the Rising Sun and Smoke on the Water. That's the first, the first two songs. Song everyone like, learns how to play, yeah. right? Smoke on the Water. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, uh, but I just never, I never from that point, it was shortly after that we moved up here. My parents moved to, to Hutch. And at that point, I was getting into, you know, uh, I was getting more into skateboarding, getting away from sports. I was getting more into um, the whole punk rock scene and things. Because that was still, that was early, or was, I guess that was late 80s when we moved here. So it was, you know, punk rock had kind of seen its day, but it was still had a pretty strong mm -hmm. subculture and it was fast punk rock fashion was huge it's it's been huge oh, forever yeah. yeah that's the only reason hot topic ever made it was because of punk fashion <laughs> you know but most punk rockers would spit on them because it's like yeah we make our clothes or we you know these clothes look this way because the, of the stories we have to tell him not because some manufacturer said oh let's put a bunch of safety pins in this and charge a hundred bucks for a t-shirt that's ripped and doesn't fit right. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, well, it's interesting what you say about the kind of helping out with the, the business part of it. I think mm -hmm. one of the problems that plagues artists and musicians, mm -hmm. artists of any kind is that they enjoy what they're doing. I, you know, oh, yeah. they, they have a passion for it. They love it. And then we, we kind of have to, they have to figure out then how to, how to turn this into money. Right. And, <laughs> and, and it's not hard easy. for them to do because it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I have the same issue with writing. Sometimes I don't know. I don't know yeah. what to charge. You're absolutely right. It's, um, and you know, Veronica who's, who's with Hutch rec now, 
Veronica Nelson, she's me and her have had this conversation because I was working. Another thing I did with the music was I was involved with Hutch Rex side of getting artists for third Thursday for about a year and a half. Then they actually created a department to do that. And Veronica was the head of that department, which she's doing a great job. And I was happy to help the time I helped, but I was also happy to let Pass her it do on. it. Yeah. yeah. And she's done great with it. And she's passionate about it. She's she's big into arts in general. Um, but me and her have had this conversation. It's like, well, you know, if artists don't, regardless of the style, whether it's painting, whatever medium you use, painting, right. writing, uh, singer, songwriter, band, whatever, um, your your work is worth something. It's up to you to choose what that worth is. And again, you're, you're faced with that dilemma of, okay, well, I'm unknown at this point. So does the value of my art stay the same when I'm unknown versus when I'm well-known or does it, does it graduate as my reach graduates? Mm -hmm. That's something that a lot of people struggle with because some of these artists, uh, I've met some that, that automatically think that they're, you know, the flavor of the day. You know, because they have a couple high school girls that show up at all their shows and scream for them, they think, yeah, we need to make the big bucks. And then they price themselves out and they get no shows. They end up playing basements and stuff, which is cool. Basement shows are cool if that's what your venue is. But if you're playing because that's your only option yeah. and it's your basement, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so, um, you know, knowing a person's or or at least getting a sense of what your art is has value what it should be and then going from there me personally i think it does because it you see this even in sign bands it does tend to graduate with the amount of demand yeah. supply and demand is there so i do think that a person uh regardless of of where they're at i think they should start out with something that's reasonable but yet um pays you some, what you're worth makes it you worth know. your while yeah well, and then as you grow that can change. You know? Well, let me, since I wasn't planning on asking this, but since we're having this conversation, I think mm -hmm. it's, we have, a over the years, you and I have both seen a lot of talented musicians come out of Hutchinson. Yeah. And which is really awesome for such a small town that, it's like per yeah. capita, we have a lot of talent in, oh, this, yeah. in this town. We all, and we have for as long as I've been mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. So what, from your perspective in, in having worked with musicians and kind of helped them along, from a community-wide perspective, what would be some things that we could do as a community to best support the development of music and bands as an industry right. to make it so that that these things don't stop when kids go and get so-called real jobs? Right, right. <laughs> the death of the band. The death the, of the band. The, real the death job. of dreams. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's the soul sucker. You know, that's that's something that. I, Again, you and I have had some discussions on before about different things we could do in the community. Um, one of the biggest problems I feel like is, and, and this is, it's kind of a lame answer, but I'll, I'll expound on it. And it'll make more sense. Part of the problem is there's not the venues for it. Okay. When I first moved to Hutch, not that I'm encouraging underage kids to play bars. But when I first moved to Hutch, there was a hand, more than a handful of bars all along Main Street 
that had live music every weekend. Yep. You know, they had Shooters Club right over here. You had the Flamingo down south. You had uh, Barley Pop. You had, there was just, it was peppered. Almost every other block had some sort of establishment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> More politically correct. <laughs> establishment that, um, that catered to live music. Well, then I remember, it seems I remember, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems I remember there was some sort of legislation that changed that and the bars couldn't be on Main Street or there was a zoning thing, whatever. Um, the bars started drying up, yeah. which I don't drink. So that, as far as that side of it, it doesn't bother me. But as far as giving people access, access to local musicians, that was a major blow because most bands, let's admit it, most bands get their start in joints like that dive joints and stuff um you know so i think one of it is creating an atmosphere of uh an atmosphere of acceptance to um musicians by offering them venues that they can actually showcase their talents at because if you're a musician and you're trying to get paid that's great but if you have nowhere that pays you (laughs) or nowhere to play you're out of luck. And so right now it's, it's been relegated to coffee shops, which typically bands can't really do. I mean, you can, but it's, it's crammed and everything's got to be an acoustic set. Not that that's bad. I've had some of my funnest shows were at Metropolitan, which is pretty tight, but it's been a lot of fun. Um, And then outside of that, the one bar here in town that I know of that does live music of all kinds it can be metal it can be country it can be anything is the needle but again the needle's fairly small now you've got the places like salt city uh brewing company uh they're beginning to do more of that which is great but i think it would be nice if there was more things uh that were less taboo places Mm -hmm. to play because then again you're still relegated to a certain age group that can come see you or a certain age group that maybe their parents are willing to let them come see you, yeah. you know, cause you can get in and get a mark or whatever. Well, that's the other thing. Like some, like parents maybe have some legitimate concerns about their kids playing in bars. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. That that's legit, you know? And, and so, uh, yeah, no argument there. Um, <laughs> I think that, that one of the things, and, and I know you had brought this up one time and I never thought about it until you brought it up, but we live in a smaller Kansas community. Okay what, 42, 40, 42,000. So we're not, we're big enough that we're not a small town, but we're small enough. We're not a large town. We're kind of in that little in between. Yes. Yet I've seen many towns that are less uh, population wise than us that have parks that have huge band shells or have huge outdoor things that you can rent, you can go do whatever that are available that have full lighting. Maybe some of it's old and antiquated, but it's there. it's fully uh, electric, so you've got room for amps, whatever you need, lights, the whole nine. Um, and yet Hutch doesn't have one. Why, why don't we have something like that? I mean, we do Main Street event. We do the Kansas State Fair. We do all kinds of downtown events. It makes sense. I mean, okay, we have Avenue A, which is great. If you've ever played Avenue A, you either play to an audience that is... 50 yards away from across you, the creek, across the creek. Yeah. Or you turn around and play to people. And then your sound is in this giant echo chamber because yep. it's a, the roof is metal and yep. it just, it slams the band, whether it sounds good outside of there, the band's confused the whole time they're playing. Um, 
and monitors don't help. It just makes the noise worse. It yeah. churns it. It's like a tornado of sound that you're stuck in. I remember when I raised that issue, it was after one of my first, if not my first bike across Kansas. Oh yeah. And as I went to all these little towns mm-hmm. and we usually stay in a park, mm-hmm. camp in a park, right. I noticed that towns with like 2000 people, 3000 people had these band shells. Oh yeah. And I'm sure that they're holdovers from like old, you know, depression era WPA projects right, that people right. have maintained. But still it just struck me that we, we don't have a really good outdoor venue. Um, right. We, we, you can play outdoors, but just one that's specifically set up for like theater mm-hmm. set up for uh, bands right. in particular, we just don't have yeah. anything like that. Yeah. I mean, you look at the one in McPherson, which I've, I've played a couple times and it's in this beautiful park. And it's kind of the centerpiece of the park. When you drive through the park, there's all stuff that right in the middle of it, what do you have? You got this giant band shell and it's acoustically they're designed. So they throw the sound out, you know, they're, they're create, they're called a shell for a reason. They look like a giant shell, it's cracked shell. open, yeah. but it, but that's what it does. It helps project. And you know, I mean, uh, there's uh, obviously in this, any community, there's the cost, you know, where's it come from? It's got to come from somewhere. I, I get all that, but uh, I think something like that would be a major, um, major win for the music community, even the community of, you know, there's several dance schools in this town, mm-hmm. which for, you know, again, for the size of this town, there's what, there's two, three of them that are all legit. Yeah. Um, you've got stage nine, you've got family children's theater. They all put on plays. They could do outdoor plays, you know, they, like they do in Central Park in, in New York, you know, they do that all the time. They have outdoor plays in the middle of New York city, in the middle of, of, uh, you know, Central Park. Yeah. So it wouldn't have to be just bands. It's like, we're not building this just for the bands. Cause a lot of people, when they hear the word, a local band, they think of the kids in the garage beating the crud out of, you know, drums and guitars. And they think, Oh God, I got to listen to this. But I mean, there's a lot of great cover bands. There's a lot of great blues bands. There's a lot of great, it's, it runs gamut, you know? Um, But it's just, you, there's no place to see them. So that's one thing I would love to see change for the music community. The, the show that I do, the radio show has been helpful. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. You do a radio show every Sunday, every Sunday, uh, seven to nine, seven to nine Mm -hmm. on 100.3 KNZS. Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's called the scene, the scene. And you've used this as a way you've done this for how many years now? Uh, This year's makes six years. Okay. Yeah. And what you do with this is you really use this as a way to highlight local music mm-hmm. to make sure that there's an, there's a way for people to learn about right. local music that's out right. there. The whole premise is that when, when the whole idea came up, I was working at Johnson's as a general manager in the music store and we were doing our ads through, um, at Astra radio. And the guy that was, uh, Overall, that Chris, um, he came in one day and he goes, you know, you've got a great voice. And I said, well, I appreciate that. And he says, uh, he goes, you ever thought about radio? And I'm like, I didn't take media in school. I don't know any of that. So I don't know the very beginning of it. And he goes, well, you know, I just think it's funny because he said, working at the store, he said, I know that a lot of the local bands know you and, and you're considered the guy for a lot of these local guys. And he said, so you've got a real thing with local music. And we'd actually even put a section of the music store where we sold local music CDs and local music shirts, any of those oh, bands yeah. that had that stuff, we would, we'd say, Hey, we'll sell it. We're not even going to keep any of it. We'll sell it. You get everything. We don't want none of it. We just want to give you a spot in the store. Um, again, that was my idea. The owner wasn't 
too fond of it, but he was like, well, we don't sell enough of it that it'd really help us out anyway. Yeah. So yeah, sure. And so Chris knew all this. He knew these guys were bringing in their music. He knew. So he said, you know, back in the day, bands were broke first on local radio. A band that was from a certain town that had a local radio show, they would get their song on the radio. Then it would get to bigger markets slowly if it was popular. Right. And he said, so bands actually broke into the industry back in the day, starting out on local radio. He goes, wouldn't that be cool to do that again? I said, man, that's, that's a great idea. So I love that idea. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I thought you might. He said, you know, you've got a lot of contacts. He said, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about you doing, you know, helping out with that radio show. And I'm like, all right. So the next month rolls around, he comes in to re-up on our ads or sell us more airtime or whatever. And he says, uh, so you ready to start that? And I said, well, what do you mean start it? And he says, well, the radio show. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can get bands. And he's like, well, no, I mean, you're you're going to be the one running it. And I'm like, wait a second. You know, I'm like, I don't know Jack about this stuff. You know, I've never done radio before, you know? And, um, so he goes, well, here he goes, he goes, just come in one day and we'll talk about it. I'll show you how things run. He said, basically all you need to do is record the intros, outros, introduce the bands, plug our advertisers. He said, you're just, you're the voice behind this. And, uh, so I did, and that was six years ago. But, um, but essentially, my whole goal with it was that it's we play unsigned, independent Kansas artists. So if you're an artist out there and you've got music that you want to get played, here's an opportunity for you to get it on the air. That's what I wanted. And one of the reasons that I really want to do it is because I didn't have that. Yeah. You know, I'd been in several iterations of different bands throughout the years. I did the metal thing. I did the punk thing. I did the alt rock thing. I did the Americana thing. You know, I've, I've done different flavors of it because everybody has different tastes and no one is straight on just one style. Everybody likes a little bit of everything. Sure. And so it comes out and your music comes out in your influences. So when I did that is doing that, there wasn't a radio show that you couldn't get your stuff on the radio. You, you could hardly get a show in this town if, if you weren't known. Yeah. And so I was like, man, I, I wish I had a platform where I could give these guys that opportunity because now they've got something that I wished I had had. And if I have the opportunity to be the guy to, to spearhead it, then why not? Why not help them out? And so that's what started the whole thing was the conversation we had about breaking out and me explained to him, I wish there was a place because he asked the same thing. He's like, well, why don't the bands play around here more? I'm like, there's no place for them to play. You know, where do they play? And so it was kind of, that was my virtual before that was a real term uh -huh. virtual venue for these guys. It's like, if you get me recording, even if it's demo quality, if it's, if you can understand everything, you're going to get some airtime. And so that was my whole goal with that was I wanted to give people a platform and say, here, get your stuff out there. And I know for the the bands, because going back, you know, my son, Mitch, yeah. he, he's been in several bands mm -hmm. and they all, most of them ended up, I think all of them probably ended up on the scene mm -hmm. at one time. And they were excited about that. That was oh, an exciting yeah. thing for them to be able to know that their music was being uh, played yeah. on the radio. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. 
They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.